number one questions I get is, how did you know this was God's will for your life? And I say to people, it's not. And they go, what? Because usually people are asking me, how did I know this was God's will for my life? Because they think if they can do something that gets them on stage and gets them applauded, that that would really be satisfying. And so people look to a guy who, let's be honest, every day I'm going to just show up to work and I'm going to get applauded for it. I haven't even sung a note and people are going to be like, yay, unless you're there to see Skillet and then you're going to be like, boo, get off the stage. Um, I'm just kidding. But... Uh, so it's a dizzying thing because I always say to my wife, I go, you know, it's kind of tragic that I show up to work and people applaud me, and yet you slave away, like, changing diapers, hanging out with the kids, and no one's there going, way to go. Like, there's no post office worker with, like, an applause section just going, go, Jim, envelopes, yeah, yeah, you know. And so I get it. I get why people would go, I want to get on stage and I want people to applaud me for showing up to work. That makes sense to me. But the problem is... God's not going to give you that as his will for your life because he's already kind of told us what his will for our life is, right? If you look through the scriptures, we're told things like this. This is God's will for your life. Be joyful always. And all of us go, yeah, big deal. That's not what I'm asking for. And then he says, pray continually. This is God's will for your life. And we're like, no, God, that's not what I'm asking for. And then he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for your life. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, this is God's will for your life, your purity that you abstain from sexual immorality. And all of us are going, that's not what I'm asking for. I'm asking for a plan, God. Give me the plan, right? How many of you guys want to know what you're supposed to do with your life? Right? So it's really frustrating when God just won't give it to you. And I, I call this God is not a pirate because he's not. He's not, maybe it's because I watched Goonies too many times as a kid. Anybody seen Goonies? Right? Come on now. Truffle, shuffle, chunk, come on. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> I started showing that to my girls, by the way, the other day. And I was like, oh, there's a lot more curse words in this than I remember. Shut your ears, children. <laughs> And then Sloth came out, and my girls got up and ran screaming out of the room. I was like, okay, we'll have to wait till you're older anyway. Um, but God, he's not hiding his will for you. He's not. He's not going, here's the secret, and I'm going to give you a little treasure map, and you got to go all Chester Copperpot and get out of the way of the booby traps, and maybe if you try hard enough, you'll get to figure out what my will for your life is. He's not doing that. Uh, I want, if you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Ephesians 2, verse 10. And I was reading this this morning. This verse has been kind of a life verse for me. And it's kind of shown me how I don't need to figure out God's will for my life. I need to let his life change my will. Did you guys catch that? I don't, we don't need to figure out God's will for our life. We need to let his life change our will, okay? Ephesians 2.10, if you got it. Anybody want to read it out loud, like old school VBS style? Anybody got it? Anybody? My man, what's your name? Hey, Christian. Ooh, fitting. <laughs> Look, it's Christian. Going to read his Bible for everybody. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Do you want to stand up and read it? Shout it out.
Everybody give Christian a, a round of applause. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote it from the ESV. I think that was the NIV. ESV says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us that we might walk in them. I got three points that kind of came to me. I went to Roaster's Coffee this morning. Over Anybody from Pasco? A couple of you? Nope, nobody. Okay, cool. Um, a couple of you. Uh, I was sitting there, and three words came out, like any good sermon, three eyes. You got to have the assonance or the alliteration, right? So the three eyes I want us to look at out of Ephesians 10, Ephesians 2.10 are these, identity, intimacy, and interruption. So if you're taking notes, identity, intimacy, and interruption. What do I mean? Identity. For we are God's some versions say masterpiece, others say workmanship, others say we are God's handiwork. In the Greek, do you know what that word is? Hey, Christian, you know what the Greek word is for handiwork? Come on, bro. You're my bro. Poema. Sounds offensive. Poema. It actually is more closely related to the English word poem. For we are God's poem. Which means, like Psalm 139 tells us, God's kind of slaved over you. He thought you out. You know, a poem, you don't just sit down and just, just write out whatever is on your mind. And they're like, that's a poem. A poem is carefully crafted. Every syllable matters. Psalm 139 lets us in on what he's saying here. It says you've been knit together by God. You've been handmade by him. How do I know? Because some of your friends think you're weird. That's how I know you're God's workmanship. Because when you watch TV, there are certain things you laugh at that nobody else laughs at. Anybody? That's me at a movie theater. It's like dead quiet. I'm like, ah, And everyone stares because I'm the only one in the theater who thought that was funny. You don't like the same colors as your friends. You're not into the same fashion. There's certain things that break your heart that don't break other people's hearts. This is all evidence that God made you on purpose. The lie that we all struggle with, because this is what the culture is pressing on us, is you are what you do. But notice what this says. It says you are God's workmanship created for good works. In other words, it doesn't say, you are God's worker created for work, and once you do a bunch of things, then you'll be God's masterpiece. That's not what it says. It says, God has made you a masterpiece, and because you're a masterpiece, you get to go do good works. I call that learning to stop living for God. What? I want you, if you really believe that your identity is in Christ, that you are made by him, that you're his masterpiece, you're his poema, then it allows you to stop living for him. What do you mean? A long time ago, we were doing this youth convention, okay, in Kentucky. It was a statewide youth convention. There's 2,000 kids there, and the theme of the camp was live big for God. Live big for God. And they actually had the kids chant it over and over like, like the mummy. Emote, emote. 
And all the kids are shouting this, live big for God, live big. And something, I went, man, I don't know. There's something, there's something about this that's not sitting right with me. So the last morning I get up with my guitar and I'm kind of like wincing as I say this. I go, I, I don't think you should live for God. And everyone's like, <gasps> I said, I think some of you need to stop living for God until you learn how to live because of God. Do you see what I'm saying? You are God's poema created for good works. Not you were created for good works to prove that you're his poema. Until you learn to live because you're loved and because you're accepted, then you're always going to be doing things for that very acceptance that God's already giving you. You know how I know? Because John the disciple was not Jesus' favorite. What do you mean? How many of you guys grew up in church? Have anyone been to church before? Raise your hand. Okay. Or to a church building, I should say, because the church are his people. But anyone been to a service in a building full of people who believe in Jesus? Okay. I grew up going to church, and I remember very vividly when I was seven years old, my Sunday school teacher pulled out a felt board. How many of you guys remember the felt board, the magical, mystical, amazing felt board? This was before apps, people, okay? So this was amazing technology back in the day. You open up the felt board, and then these little paper figures just, they just, magic, you know? And I remember seven years old, my Sunday school teacher is taking us through each of the disciples. And she's going, this one's Peter. And Peter denied Jesus. Not very good, Peter. And here's Thomas. Thomas doubted. Not very good, Thomas. And here's John. John. John was the disciple Jesus loved. John was Jesus' favorite. And I remember seven years old, I raised my hand. I said, I want to be Jesus' favorite. She goes, mm-mm, John. John's Jesus' favorite. He's the disciple Jesus loved. I said, I want to be the disciple Jesus loved. She goes, mm-mm, John. And I grew up, how many of you, how many of you grew up thinking John the disciple was Jesus' favorite? How many of you were told that? Not, not all of you. Okay, I was told that until I read the Bible and I found out the only places that John is called the disciple that Jesus loves are in the books that he wrote. <laughs> and here is what is crazy about that. If anybody could have talked about what they did for God, it was him. I mean, he had the most impressive resume of any disciple. He was the disciple who laid his head on Jesus' chest, right? If I'm John introducing myself to the world, I would have been like, and John, the disciple who got custody of Jesus' mother, what's up? Oh, you remember John, the disciple who stood at the cross when all the other disciples punked out and ran away? What's up? That's not what he says. He says when it comes to identify who he is, he doesn't put any stake in anything he's ever done. He doesn't say, John, the sports guy. He doesn't say, Mike, the singer of 10th Avenue North. He doesn't say, Brittany, the cheerleader. 
He doesn't say, Zach, the 4.0 honor roll student. He doesn't say, Ted, the business mogul. He doesn't put his identity on anything he does. Rather, in 1 John 4.10, he says, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. I am the disciple that Jesus loves. And you know why that was his identity? Because it's the one identity that can never be taken. I'm asking you right now, if you're trying to figure out God's will for your life, you're never going to find it if you're wrapping your identity in what you do. Because what you do will be taken from you. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but one day you're going to die. How are you going to do what you do when you're dead? I kind of like that. I'm going to write that down. How you going to do what you do when you're dead? You ain't. <laughs> Here's the deal. If I had clung to what I wanted to do, I never would have ended up here today. See, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a basketball player. Can't you just see me on the court? I actually know a guy in the NBA, and I'm not telling you that to sound cool. I'm telling you that because the last time we hung out, he picked me up and swung me around. I did not feel cool. I felt like a hobbit, okay, because he's seven <laughs> feet tall. It was absurd. So I never became a basketball player because I stopped growing. But then I wanted to be in theater. Well, here's the deal. My sports dreams were shattered when I was in high school because when I was 17, my best friend was driving us to school one day, and he caught the edge of the road, and he overcorrected, and our car flipped five times at 50 miles an hour. I got thrown out like Peter Pan, just <laughs> like that. And I hit the ground. I broke my back in two places. My fifth and eighth thoracic vertebrae were crushed. My skull was fractured right here. My ear was ripped off. I had to have 96 stitches to reattach my ear. All the girls are going, yeah, and all the guys are going, cool. <laughs> I had to lay in the hospital for a week in intensive care. The doctor said I was going to die. Then they said I'd never walk again. Then they said I'd never make a full recovery. I like to see how long that can go before it's awkward. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> but what happened was for two months, I had to lay on my back my senior high school. And I wasn't playing basketball at the time. Our soccer team was like doing super well. We were first in the state in Virginia. I thought maybe I'll get a scholarship playing soccer. And then my back gets broken. And I was mad at God. I wasn't even happy that I was alive. I was saying, God, how could you do this to me? This is my senior year of high school. How could you let all my dreams get shattered? Well, what happened? Well, I had to lay on my back for two months, so I asked for a guitar. I'd never played guitar up to that moment in my life. And our band has a song that says, I want to know a song can rise from the ashes of a broken life. We sing that because that's literally what happened to me. That it was through my dreams being crushed and my way that I thought I should go being shattered that God opened up a path that he had for me. And to top it off, you know what's awesome? I got to college. I was the worst guitar player in my whole dorm. 
every guy was better than me. And the only reason I was playing was to try to pick up girls. But it was terrible because they were like, well, Jordan plays way better than you. And, and I, I had all the wrong motivations, but God was up to something. And if I had said, no, God, I'm going to do sports. It's going to go this way. I would have missed the thing that God was giving me. And you're like, well, that doesn't help me. I'm just trying to figure out which way to go, man. Here's a really, a really good thing. If you came here, maybe you didn't come here to hear this, but if you're asking, I just want to know what God's will for my life is, Frederick Buechner has this really great, great quote, and he says, your calling is where your deep gladness meets the world's deep needs. See, I believe this with all my heart. I'm not called to be a musician. I'm not. I'm not called to be a singer. Jesus told the disciples what their calling was. And if I read the scriptures right, their calling is my calling. And that calling is your calling. You want to know what it is? It's go into all the world and make disciples. And some of you are like, oh, great. I came over here just to hear that I have to move to Africa and become a missionary. That sounds horrible. I hate this. I'm leaving. Goodbye. But I'm still sitting here. <laughs> and how come Mike's voice is my inner monologue? I don't know. Um, <laughs> here's the deal. Making disciples, let's like just, let me dumb that down for you. That just means as you do what you love, do it in a way where you're helping other people that you're helping other people see who Jesus is. And what I love about making disciples is it's not go into all the world and preach. It's go into all the world and get down and dirty and actually be in relationship with other people. Here's the deal. What, well, let me skip that. How much time do I have? Let me see. I got to make all my points. An hour. I got like 20 more minutes. And then I'm going to do a little Q&A. And then I, I, my band is actually sound checking right now. So when I'm done, I have to run and go sound check. But I'm going to try to build in like 20 minutes of Q&A here in a second. Just because that's the way I like to do things. Um, so you're created for your identity, right? You're also created for intimacy. Um, notice what Ephesians 2.10 says. It says... We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You're God's poema, created in Christ. It doesn't say you're created for Christ to use. You're created in Christ to be with him. One of the reasons I think we have so much misunderstanding about God would want, would, what he would want us to do with our life is that we think that God needs us. We think that we need to figure out his plan. But I got news for you. This might sound sort of weird and offensive, but I don't think God cares what you do with your life. What? I think he cares why you do what you do and how you do what you do. See, we look at the end result. Like to us, the people who are success story are people like Michael Jordan, right? Because Michael Jordan, he won six rings. He's one of the best basketball players in the world. What he did, what he accomplished is who he is to us. 
And I got news. God is not impressed with Michael Jordan. He's not going, wow, you're really good at basketball. I better not take you one-on-one. No. What got, matters to God is, hey, Michael, what are you doing that for? Why are you doing that? Because at the end of the day, I believe this, God doesn't want to give you a plan as much as he wants to give you his presence. How do I know that? Well, I can suspect a couple things. But the main thing, the reason I know that is because of all the relation words that God uses between him and the church, he calls his disciples servants, he calls his disciples friends, he calls us brothers and sisters, he calls us children, but he also, throughout scripture, calls his church the bride. Of all the relational words that God could use to describe the sort of relationship he wants to have with his people, he uses wedding analogy. And I know for all the guys that's really awkward because you're like, what? I ain't nobody's bride, Mike. This is weird. It's an analogy, bro. Chill out, okay? It's sprinkled throughout, sprinkled throughout the scriptures. But one of the most intriguing moments for me was when I was reading by a guy named Ray Vanderlaan. And this guy, Ray Vanderlaan, he's from Michigan. And he's studied under rabbis in Israel for years and years and years. And his whole ministry is built around getting you to read the Bible through the original lens in which it was written. So I'm reading this thing this one day, and he's talking about the Lord's Supper. How many of you guys have taken Lord's Supper before? Bread, wine, right? Grape juice, crackers. Okay, I don't know how you do it at your church, but... Basically, it's the, the Passover supper Jesus is having with the disciples, and they're going through the cups. Now, I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know this, but there's seven different cups in the Passover feast at that time. And the third cup was referred to as the cup of salvation. And traditionally, when a rabbi got to this cup, he'd pour the wine in the cup, and then he would lift it up, and they would say, this is for the coming Messiah. And they would set it aside, and nobody would drink it. So... Jesus, most scholars believe, he gets to the third cup in the meal, the cup of salvation, which was to be set aside for the Messiah. And instead of setting it aside, he takes a big old swig and he says, this is my covenant with you, take and drink it. So not only is he saying, the Messiah is here, it's me. But when he uses the words, this is my covenant with you, take and drink it, the disciples in their turn of the millennium, fishermen minds would have just heard, will you marry me? At which point, all the disciples probably looked straight at Peter and went, you do it, man. You're always jumping into stuff, bruh. See, in that time, when a guy was going to marry a girl, he would go to his dad and he'd say, yo, dad, you see that girl over there? Yeah, I want to marry that girl. I'll make some little rabbis, you know what I'm saying? So you got to work something out. So his dad would go to her dad and he would say, so, uh, like, how many camels for a chance for my boy to marry your girl? And, you know, her dad would be like, well, it'd be like um, 52 camels and uh, three sheep. And he'd be like, okay, cool. So they would pay. Now, girls, before you get offended, he would pay for the chance to propose. So he could pay the 52 camels and three sheep. And then at the end of the day, the girl could be like, nah, you smell like Hamas. I don't want to. So she had that right. Girls are like, okay, I like that. You got to pay me just to ask me. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Check this out. So this is how he would do it. They'd pay the bride price, 
And then they would get all their friends and family in a room, and they'd pour the cup, and he would say these words. This is my covenant with you. Take and drink it. He would take a sip, and he would slide it across the table. And if she wanted to say no, she'd just pass. But if she was going to say yes, she would just take the cup and drink. At that point, she would go back to her town, and he would go to his town, and they wouldn't see each other for the entire engagement time. The only way they could communicate was by the best man. He was basically like the text messenger. He would go to her town, write a little note, check yes, no, or maybe. He'd come back to his town. This is what she said. Here you go. That was the only way they could communicate. They wouldn't see each other for the entire engagement period. Now, what was the groom doing? The groom would go back to his father's house, and he would start working on a mansion. Now, girls, before you get excited, the Aramaic word that we see in Scripture for mansion is actually translated apartment. Okay, and to top it off, it was actually an extension built onto his parents' house. Girls are going, okay, yeah, I don't want to marry a Jewish boy. No, mm -mm. it was called an insula. You can still see them today. Basically, generation after generation would build on, build on a mansion, build on a mansion, build on a mansion. It was basically like additions to the family insula, the house. In the meantime, the girl would go back to her town, and she didn't know the day, the time, or the hour that the wedding would be. She would have to look out her window every day and wait. In the meantime, she was no longer called her name. The entire engagement period, she was called one who was bought with a price. Meanwhile, the dude's back at the house building the apartment, right? And he didn't get to decide when it was done. Only his father got to decide when it was done. So every day he'd be working, he'd look to the pop, say, is it done yet? No? Okay. Is it done yet? No? Okay. Is it done yet? And then finally, when the father gave his approval, the dude would grab his groomsmen, and they would pick up some shofars, which were ram's horns, and they'd run over to her town unannounced, and they'd start blowing their horns. Let's, let's all do a ram's horn noise. Come on. That's so weird. Okay. And they would be doing that until she'd basically go, oh, my goodness. She'd run down the stairs and basically down the aisle. They'd get married, make little rabbis, live happily ever after, right? Now, rewind the tape. Does this sound like anything you've heard before? Jesus says, this is my covenant with you. Take and drink it. The disciples go, Let's see how far this rabbit hole goes. I'm not sure what he's trying to say here, but I think it's an analogy, so we'll drink it. And they drink it, and they're like, okay, now what? Jesus says, I got to leave for a while. During this engagement time, we're going to be apart. But don't fret. I'm going to send my best man, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to communicate messages between me and you. Because here's the deal. You're going to go back to your town, and I'm going to go back to my father's house where there are many mansions. And I'm going to create one for you. P.S. I don't know about you. I'm kind of glad that mansion that I get in heaven isn't some big ornate thing where I live by myself. But it's an addition to the Father's house. In the meantime, you go to your town. You're not going to be called by your name anymore. You're going to be one who is bought with a price. Now, you don't know the day, the time, or the hour when I'm going to come back. But you know what? Neither do I. Because only the Father knows the day, the time, or the hour. And when he gives me the word... I'm going to get my groomsmen, the holy angels. They're going to get their shofars, the four trumpets. And I'm going to come into your town unannounced, and they're going to blow their trumpets from the four corners of the world, and I'm going to bring you home for the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
everything in scripture is pointing to this reality that we are meant to be intimate with the God who made us. That's why he uses marriage analogy because it's the most intimate relationship we have on the earth. It's also why God says he hates divorce. You know, in the Old Testament it says, I hate divorce. I used to think God did that just because he didn't like divorced people. But he's not trying to get down on divorced people. He's trying to say, look, marriage is a mirror to the world of how I love my bride. And I don't know if you know this, but we're also told not only does he love us as a bride, he loves us as an unfaithful bride. He loves us like a cheating bride. He tells his prophet Hosea to marry a girl named Gomer, which is a rather unfortunate name. My apologies if your name is Gomer. And on top of it, not only is her name Gomer, but God says, this girl's going to cheat on you, and you're going to bring her back. Hosea's like, I'm going to do what? You're going to bring her back. And you know what? She's going to sell herself to other lovers, and you're going to go pay for her and bring her back. I'm going to do what? And then she's going to have children with other lovers, and you're going to bring them in as your own kids. I'm going to do what? And Hosea says, why on earth am I supposed to do this for you, God? And on Hosea 3, God says, I want you to marry that unfaithful woman because that's the way I love my people. This truth for me, makes me understand that God isn't looking at me like he needs me. He's looking at me like he wants me. Do you know that about you? Or do you think God only wants you as a commodity to use? Or do you know that God doesn't look at you as a commodity? He looks at you as a treasure that he's willing to give everything to win back. It was at a festival like this when I actually stopped asking God to use me. What? Yeah. Seven years ago, Life Fest in Wisconsin, I stopped praying for God to use me. You want to know why? I'm sitting there praying backstage, right? Right before the show. I'm like, God, use our band. God, use our band. Use our band. Use our band, God. What could be more noble than asking God to use you, right? Isn't that what we all want? Like, God, I just want to give you my life so that you can use it to help other people. But God saw through even my most noble prayer, and he tapped me on the shoulder. He didn't really tap me on the shoulder, but it felt like he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, yo, Mike. That's what God calls me. He calls me Mike. He said, what if I want to use the other bands? Use me first. Use me first, God. Then you can use the other bands. And God saw through my prayer and showed me that I was using being used by God as my identity instead of being loved and known by God as my identity. Your loveliness to God does not rise and fall with your usefulness. Do you know that? It breaks my heart when I listen to people who've grown up in church, and it seems like that sometimes in the church we sell people, hey, you want to give God all your burdens of shame and guilt and all the sin that you've ever committed, he's going to forgive you. And you're like, yes, I'll give you all my burdens, God. And they're like, okay, now here's some new burdens. Be a leader. Leave a legacy. Do a bunch of good things for God. Lead a bunch of people to Jesus or your life doesn't mean anything. 
And we basically just took some burdens and just placed a whole heaping bunch of other ones on them. But Acts 17, verse 24 through 26, you know what it says? It says a couple things. But one of the things it says is, God is not served by men's hands as if he needed anything. But he gives to us life, breath, and all things. Which means there is a way that you and I can serve God which blasphemes him. If you're serving God because you think he's up in heaven twiddling his fingers going, I don't know how I can do this without you. Then you actually accuse him of being less than powerful. You guys are like, well, this is a downer. It's not a downer. This is beautiful because if God doesn't need you, it means he can actually want you. You can't want the thing that you have to have. It's the fact that God doesn't need us, and yet he chooses to go to the grave, to chase us all the way into hell, to get us back. That ought to free you up to realize God's love for you is not going to change. He loved you not when you just weren't that lovable. He loved you when you were running the complete opposite direction. And you're not a commodity for him to use. You're a treasure he gave everything to win back. This allows me to not only have intimacy with God, but it allows me to be honest with God. We, uh, we were playing this festival down in Texas, and this couple came to us, and uh, he said, hey, I was listening to your song, Oh My Dear. Oh My Dear is a song that I wrote. It's a true story between me and my wife. When my wife and I were about to get married, we started having like the you know, air out your dirty laundry talks, right? And so my wife was talking to me at this thing, and she's like, hey, I got this secret, but I can't tell you. It's just too terrible. And I promised myself I would only tell my future husband. Of course, I'm like, what is it? She's like, I can't tell you. I was like, what is it? She's like, mm. I begged her for hours and hours, and finally, it was like super late at night. We're sitting out outside of this motel. It was long story, but you can hear the song. It tells you the whole story. Anyway, she finally tells me this big, bad, deep, dark secret, mascara running down her face, and I, I'm not kidding you. I'm not going to tell you exactly what it was, but this was my legitimate reaction. That's it? <laughs> and she's like, what, what do you mean that's it? I said, that's it. Do you not know that the blood of Jesus is way stronger than the worst of your sin? And it, it actually, that, that, we wrote that song first, and then we wrote the whole album called The Light Meets the Dark. That was all based on this verse in James 5 that says, if we confess our sins to each other and pray for one another, we'll be healed. That we're forgiven when we confess to God, but there's a healing that won't take place until you look another person in the eye and you admit how screwed up you are. Because up until that point, it's kind of like a fairy tale. But when you look at someone and you see their face or you find someone who knows the gospel enough to look at you and say, that's it. We, we know this uh, pastor in Phoenix, and they do this thing called True Face, and they basically teach everyone in their church when someone confesses something to you, your only right reaction is, is that all you got? Is that all you got? 
but you'll never come forward with those secrets until you really believe that his love and his intimacy for you is not based on you. Because that's when you can finally come and clean and say, this is who I am. Um, anyway, I had another point, but I'm just going to leave it. It's called interruption. And it's basically, I think the whole thing that God frees us for, he frees us to change our identity to be based on his love. He changes our intimacy to be number one with him, and that actually allows us to be honest and intimate with each other. And then that actually opens up a new way of ministry, which is the ministry of interruption. Because it's been my experience over the years that some of the most profound moments of ministry are the times that I otherwise, if I was still trying to build my brand and try to be a big deal, I would have walked right by those moments. Oh, I'll just tell you this story real quick. So we're playing at Winter Jam. Anybody heard of Winter Jam? Okay, so we're on Winter Jam a couple years ago, got a bunch of people on it, and every day we're playing basketball, right? And we're just thinking we're, we're a big deal. I mean, we're getting arenas full of people are coming to this concert and everyone's screaming for us and we're just, you know what, we are ministering to so many people. We're so important. And so every day, about for two hours, we would go to a local YMCA and there's about 10 of us artists who would get together we'd play basketball because we deserved a couple hour break to play some basketball. And this was going along wonderfully. We had probably played about 10 or 12 games over the course of a couple weeks. And then one day, nine of us show up. So we need an extra guy. And we get to this YMCA, and I see this dude on the opposite court shooting by himself baskets. And I say to him, yo, man, you want to play some basketball? We got nine. We need one more. And he turns, and he goes, yeah. And so it's quickly apparent that he has some kind of mental thing happening. I'm still not sure what it was this day, but he had special needs of some sort. And I wish I could tell you, all of us went, awesome, we get a chance to bless this guy. That's not what happened. All nine of us collected sigh. <sighs> Man, we were really going to have a good time, but now this kid's just kind of inconveniencing the whole thing. So we go, all right, cool, let's, let's get on with it, let's play. And I feel bad because I've invited him, so I'm like, you can be on my team, man, because I'm a good Christian, so I'm going to love you, and here we go, so we're playing basketball. Meanwhile, God has this whole plan that we don't see, right? We start the game, the other team goes down, they shoot, they miss, I don't know, we come back down, this kid touches the ball. He's about two feet in from the three-point line, and he takes it, and I'm like, bro, bro, here, here, and he looks at me, he looks at the hoop, and he just launches the worst-looking shot I've ever seen in my life. And it goes up, 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 ar, ar, nothing but net. Everyone goes, oh, oh, that didn't expect that. He is pumping his fist like he just won the NBA Finals, and he's screaming, yeah, and he's running back. And we're like, okay, that was cool, that was cool. So pass the ball around, pass back. We get the ball back. We come down. I pass it to someone else. They pass me. I pass to him like, here, pass me the rock. This time he's five feet behind the three-point line. He goes, another horrible-looking shot. Goes up, actually touches a rafter. <laughs> Nothing but net. All of us go, uh-uh. <laughs> this time he's like, I mean, I thought he was going to rip his shirt in two like Hulk Hogan. Right? He's just, yeah. We're, we're giving high fives. This is amazing. And so we pass. And then we come back down third time in a row. I'm not making this up from 
maybe, I don't know how far back, way outside three-point. He grabs the ball. Again, first time he touches it, launches the thing up, 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 next to the ceiling, down. Nothing but net. Three in a row. At this point, we're crying. People are hugging each other, okay? We're all repenting before the Lord. And this kid's day was made, man. And it made the rest of our week. And we're just high-fiving. And the rest of the game goes on, and he was actually the worst basketball player ever. I mean, he, every shot after that, he would shoot over the backboard into the raft. Like, awful. And it was just this moment, and it felt like God just said, see what you've been missing? Because you're so addicted to your plan and the way things should go and the way you think you would be refreshed. And if you would just open your eyes to the people who seem like an inconvenience, you would find that is where I'm ready to bless you. All through Jesus' ministry, this is the ministry he embraced. He's preaching to people in a house. Dude gets lowered through the ceiling, right? He's on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, and this bleeding woman comes up. He's on his way to do this big thing, and then this deaf and mute guy gets thrown from Jesus embraced the ministry of interruption. And don't believe the lie that your identity is wrapped up in who you're going to be and all the great things that you're going to do so that you actually miss the little moments that God has created for you in Christ Jesus, that you might walk in them. In other words, finding God's, life for your, finding God's life for your will is saying, I am God's poem. He's knit me together with very specific things I love, with very specific things that break my heart. And my calling is to say, how can I take these passions and how can I meet the world's great needs? I've been created for intimacy in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he created for me already. And all I got to do is each morning wake up and say yes. Yes to the kid who looks like an inconvenience. Yes to the kid who doesn't look like that's going to be a rewarding thing. Because what Mother Teresa said is true. This last thing I'll say. We can do no great things, just small things with great love. Love that. We can do no great things for God, just small things with great love. Let me pray really quick, and uh, I'm going to do a little question and answer if anyone wants to stay for about 15 minutes. So, Father, I thank you so much. Um, I always feel like I'm rambling, um, but uh, I really believe that um, God, if we just believe that we are precious in your sight, man, it would just free us up to do so many more things that maybe we would have looked at as beneath us before. And I pray that we would not miss the things that you've created for us, that we would walk in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Cool. Sweet. Anybody? Yeah. You can give me five. So anybody got a question? Yeah. So we go, you know, we've got uh, kind of mountaintops and valleys that we go through in our walk. Did you guys hear what he said? Uh, he basically said, our life is full of valleys and doldrums or 
peaks and valleys. So when you're not on a peak, how do you walk through the valley? And I think a really easy way, I'll keep talking just because I'm so shy. Um, but for me, I, I just heard this guy, he's an uh, ultra mar- uh, triathlete. So he does Ironmans, which, you know, is like a marathon and a swim and a bike. And there's two you do back-to-back. You take a 24-hour break, and then you do another one. And this guy is 60, and he still competes. He's won several of these things. And he said, someone asked him, how do you do this? And he said, well, when I'm going through that slump, I don't. um, Some people listen to themselves. I talk to myself. I think it's interesting, you see David throughout the Psalms being really honest about how he feels, number one. He's not sugarcoating it. He's not going, this is really tough, God, but it's cool. I mean, it's like, I totally, I'm totally trusting you, God, but, like, but it's kind of hard. No, David goes, God, where are you? How long are you? And he's just weeping and being so honest. Kierkegaard, by the way, said, the cynics argue with each other, but the saints argue with God. So David is just letting God have it. Psalm 62, 8 says, pour out your heart before the Lord. The Lord is a refuge for those who trust in him. So he's just giving it all to God. And then he gets to this point, once he's just given God all his questions, all his anxiety, all his worry, and he goes, why so downcast, O you, my soul? Put your hope in the Lord. I think a lot of us don't realize that we have the power to tell our souls what to do and what to feel. We think we've just been totally left on our own to just be privy to whatever our heart feels. And that's just not true. You've been given the Holy Spirit who's able to comfort us in our distress. And he comforts us so that we can tell our souls what's true. Anyone else? Yeah. How long did it take me to recover from my accident? Uh, About two months. So, I mean, kind of insane. I mean, they were saying I'd never walk again. And then, I mean, I actually played on my basketball team that winter. So it happened in September, and I was, like, out running around by early December. Yeah. Cray-cray. Super cray. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, uh, a while back, What did I say? Yeah, I think about what Charles Spurgeon, he's saying, what would I say if I could tell you one thing? I just love what Charles Spurgeon used to say about his preaching. He said, the sign of a good church isn't that you leave that church going, oh, what a great sermon, or oh, what a great music conductor. And just like I would say, if you left one of our concerts, I hope that you don't walk away going, what an amazing band. What an incredible show. Charles Spurgeon said, if I do my job right, you ought to be walking away going, what an amazing Savior. Right? And so any Christian entity that sets itself up to make you think you need it, run away. Because you've been given the Holy Spirit. Like, You don't need a self-help therapy person to teach you. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. And and we're made for relationship for each other, like that we shouldn't forsake the meeting of ourselves together, Hebrews 11 tells us. 
but not in a way where like, I just can't follow Jesus unless my pastor tells me something. Most of you already know more of the Bible than you'll ever need to follow Jesus. In fact, I would say some of you need to stop reading so much of the Bible and you need to actually act on the things you already know. That's like Ephesians 2.10, I talk about one verse. I could talk about that for days. And my life started changing when I stopped trying to like be this glutton for spiritual information. And I just started saying, okay, God, how can I actually like do the things I already know I'm supposed to do, like forgive people? I mean, what if we just, as a church family, just said our number one mission is just to forgive people? That's what Paul said, by the way, in 1 Corinthians. He says, you've been, 1 Corinthians 5, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say you've been given the ministry of music. He doesn't say you've been given the ministry of blogging. You've been given the ministry of Instagram. No, he doesn't say that. He says your ministry is to forgive people and to convince them they're forgiven. That's what you're here on the earth to do. That's my band. Yeah, Christian. So you know that saying, you heal stronger in the broken places? In the same way, grace is glue that sticks to our shortcomings. We all think if we just didn't have any problems, if we didn't have any disagreements, then everything would be great. But actually, the most beautiful moments, our drummer, our drummer and I are the most different two human beings that could ever have existed. And and we've been in the band together for 17 years. And we disagree on almost everything. But that's what's beautiful is because if we agreed on everything, it wouldn't be a chance for either of us to learn how to show grace. But the very fact that you disagree, that's a divine moment when you can actually make a supernatural, grace-filled bridge where there was division. Because Ephesians 2 says, he's broken down the dividing walls of hostility. And that's our great privilege, right? I mean, that, I think Bono said that about you too. He goes, the great miracle of this band is that we're still together. And that's part of the deal, man. Anybody else? You got to go. You got to go. I'll do like two more real quick. Three more, right? You. Wait, I'll go to you next. You go.
Uh, I just read, she's asking, she feels like God really gave her a vision of what he wanted her to do, but she's worried about just staying spirit-filled as the day-to-day, like working toward that sort of vision. Am I hearing you right? There's this really great, I just wrote this down yesterday in Ecclesiastes 11.4. It says, if you wait for con- if you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. I love that because so many of us are like, oh, everything's going to have to. It's like, no, man, God's working with a broken planet, with broken humans. And so don't freak out if you have a day where you're not spirit filled. Get back up. Like, I love Ephesians 2.10. It says, he's created good works for you every day. All you got to do is walk. All you have to do is every day. That, I mean, what is that? That's, that's Galatians. Keep in step or walk with the spirit and you will not obey the lust of the flesh. That's a, hey, cool, you got this end goal, but God is way more interested in you just staying connected with him. And the cool thing is, no matter what kind of 10-year vision you have, you can't get there except for one step at a time. And I love that. I don't know if that helps. Maybe. Oh, Ecclesiastes 11.4. Ecclesiastes is a crazy book. It's going to mess you up. Hey, yeah, what's up? Mike, I, I love how you look underneath everything. I love how you think deeply. And I just I feel like you have something to say. Two, two different scenarios. Um, what advice would you give somebody that's starting out in the music industry that wants to try to get going in the music industry and obviously senses a lot of gifting and just wants to know how to, how to get started? And then also I feel like you have something to say. If somebody were turning 15 today, what would you say to them? All right, okay, what would I say to somebody who wants to be in the music industry, and what would I say to a 15-year-old? What would I say to a 15-year-old who wants to be in the music industry? Um, no, right. Uh, well, for, I appreciate that, man. Um, I always want to see the thing behind the thing, right? Because that's how God looks. God doesn't look at what you're doing. He looks at why you're doing it, Right? Like, I think I know some business guys who they think making money is the end all. God doesn't care if you make money or not. He cares why you're making that money and how you're making that money, right? If you're exploiting all your employees so that you can turn a huge profit, then that is not a God-honoring way to make money, right? Um, Anyway, to an aspiring artist, if you want to be an artist in the music industry, like a recording artist, this is what I always say to kids because this is what we did that we didn't realize we were doing right. You want to be a recording artist? Yes. Okay. Write songs? Okay. And record them. <laughs> so many kids are waiting to get signed. They've watched too many episodes of American Idol. They think, like, I need this big, huge corporate thing to come in and give me my vision. And nowadays, there's so, you, it's so much easier to record good-sounding music than it was even when I was doing it. And so I always say, write your songs, find the best way you can record them. If you wait for conditions to be perfect, you'll never get anything done. So like our first album sounded horrible. Our second album sounded a little less horrible. Our third album sounded a little less horrible. And then our fourth album was tolerable. And then we got signed. And then we got, uh, you know, much better, more talented people helping us. And then it actually sounded okay, right? And... So that's my simple advice in the music industry. And to a 15-year-old, oh, my goodness. 
Hmm. Forget you. I love, I mean, I know that was forget you and forget you too, but seriously, there's this, there's this Latin phrase that means curved in on ourselves. When I think even my 30-year-old friends and the struggle that social media has become for them to not be obsessed with themselves, like there are algorithms set up on your computer where the more things you look at, the more the only things that your computer will show you are things that they think you like. So it's easier than ever to only hear things that you agree with and make you feel good about you. And the problem with that is thinking about you will never get you free from you. Like John Piper used to say, man is not made for mirrors, he's made for mountains. You weren't made to feel great about yourself. You were made to forget about yourself because you're in awe of the glory of God. Right? Um, yeah, so forget you. That's the best way, I guess. Okay, I got to go do sound check. But love you guys. Thanks for coming. Cool.